Now, I'm sure you're aware that we as Christians have sort of our own lingo. We have words and phrases that we use in church that uh, many of us have heard all of our lives, and so we certainly expect everybody else to understand them. We just by default assume that people know what we are talking about. Phrases like, come to Jesus, we mean by that that we are inviting someone to respond in salvation to faith in Christ. That is to repent of their sins and find salvation in Jesus. There are, of course, variations to the wording, but the idea remains the same. But the fact is, sometimes we need to further define our statements, especially this one, because not all coming to Jesus is alike. For example, someone could come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Someone who's in the hospital could come to Jesus because they need healing. And how many times have I heard those promises made in hospital rooms? Pastor, as soon as I get out of here, if God heals me, I'm going to serve the Lord. They come to Jesus while they're in the hospital, but as soon as they get out, chances are often good they go right back to the way they were living before. Or a prisoner, for example. Many times because they are behind bars for something they've done, they will hear the gospel and they will come to Jesus. And yet once they go back out of prison and they are free, they too sometimes live like they used to live. Or maybe someone's down on their luck financially, and they come to Jesus because they need help financially, and they make promises too, but yet when their finances improve and they have the money that they need, the bills are paid, they too go back to living their normal life. And while on the outside all of these involve trying circumstances, the problem really goes much deeper than that. It's not just the crisis that someone might be going through. It is the fact that people sometimes come to Jesus for wrong motives. They respond to Him out of selfish pursuits, mainly thinking about what they're going to receive by responding to the call. We might even say that people come to Jesus with hidden agendas, not truly answering a call to salvation, but coming to Jesus for what they perceive they will get from Him, maybe even manipulating God and manipulating God's people to get what they want. Now, the motives of others, and indeed even our own motives, are often very difficult to genuinely ascertain. I'm convinced that those folks in the hospital really do mean what they say. I'm convinced that in the moment when they say that, they do really want to commit themselves to Christ and follow Him if they get better physically. So if motives are notoriously hard to pinpoint even our own, how can I say that I'm convinced that there are people who come with hidden agendas, selfish desires, and impure motives? And the answer is not because I know people's motives, but the answer is because I see this in Scripture. And because man's basic nature has not changed throughout all of these years, in spite of all of the other changes that we've seen in society, the heart of man is basically the same. And therefore, when we see people come to Jesus in the gospel narratives for the wrong reasons, we can be sure that the same thing is happening today. We've been discussing some encounters that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. All of these encounters in this latter portion of Mark's gospel take place in Jerusalem, in the temple, during Passion Week. And various religious leaders and groups are coming to Jesus, often for the wrong reason. You have to remember, these men are religious. These men are committed. These men are morally upright and standing citizens in their day. 
In fact, many would say that their lives far exceed anybody else at that time, and yet they are coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. We've seen that they come with questions, but their questions are not posed because they want the opinion of Jesus. Their questions are not asked because they are genuinely seeking the truth. They are asking questions in order to trap Jesus so that he might say something that they can use in his upcoming arrest and crucifixion. All of which tells me that just because someone comes to Jesus does not necessarily mean that they do so to repent of their sins and faithfully follow him. So today we're going to look at two more of these episodes. Only there's a difference today. The first episode is a lot like what I just described. More men coming to Jesus in order to trap him. But in the second episode, not only is it just one man, but all indications are this man comes for the truth. He's not there for a trap. He's there seeking the truth. So we're going to divide this up as we've often done in Mark's gospel. And we're going to read the first section first and come back to the second section later. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take his widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, the first of the two encounters, the first of the two questions that we are going to examine this morning is once again a question that is significant for our lives and a question that we sometimes or maybe even often think about. The question on the surface appears to be a question about marriage, but in reality the question is this, is there life after death? Now I know that we as Christians would readily answer that and say, yes, there absolutely is. We've already been singing about it. We know that the Bible talks about a place being prepared for us and we have a a desire to go there someday. So we would readily and rightly answer that yes, there is life after death. But before we are too hasty in answering the question, we do have to admit that there are some times when we doubt. Yes, even these foundational or fundamental truths There are times when we question it, and there are certainly times when we are scoffed at by others for our belief, making it essential that we not only know what we believe, but know from Scripture why it is we believe it. And so we are going to address this question of, is there life after death? And we are going to start with a definition of the Sadducees. These are the men who are coming to Jesus and asking this question. And who they are and what they believe not only lead to the question, 
but also direct the answer that Jesus gives. Now, we don't know nearly as much about the Sadducees as we do the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the more common opponent of Jesus. The Sadducees less so, but they are part of the group that makes up the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, scribes, and the Sadducees. We don't know a lot about them because none of their writings have survived. We have none of their documents. All we have is what is written by opponents and, of course, what we find in Scripture. They, as a group went out of existence in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem itself was destroyed. Now, they are clearly religious leaders. As I've said, they are men who make up a part of the Sanhedrin. In fact, there is a little bit of evidence that perhaps they even dominated the Sanhedrin according to Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. They were likely wealthy individuals, prominent men in the community, In fact, maybe even the parable we looked at a week or two ago about the wealthy landowner who rents out his vineyard and then goes to another country, it might have been directly related to them. That is, Jesus may have been speaking it directly to the Sadducees or about them. But for the purposes of this story, we care more about what they believed than who they were. It seems that in contrast to the Pharisees, they emphasized human responsibility in salvation The Pharisees emphasized divine uh, sovereignty, and it's amazing how this contemporary debate goes all the way back in Christian history. We are still arguing about how human responsibility and divine sovereignty come together, and it seems that these two groups were at odds over this topic as well. They did not believe in angels or demons. They held that only the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, are authoritative. They did not uh, have the same respect for the other books, nor did they adhere to the oral law of the scribes and the Pharisees. But again, for the purpose of our discussion this morning, or our question, the major difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They thought that the soul died with the body. And therefore, there was no afterlife. There were no divine rewards. There were no divine punishments. They believed this because there was no explicit reference in the first five books of the Bible to the resurrection. And since that was their only authority, they did not hold to the resurrection, which is still a common belief today. And so based on this belief and their disagreement with the Pharisees, they come to Jesus with a question. And we will now look at the details of this question. This question that they had likely posed to the Pharisees in their ongoing theological debates with them, they now pose to Jesus. And they begin by appealing to Moses. Again, that is their basis of authority. And it is what we call the Leverite marriage. Leverite is a word that means brother-in-law. And this comes from a command back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and I just want to read that to you so that you know the basis of what we're talking about. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And the verses that follow that talk about the consequences for someone who refuses to perform this duty. 
Now, you may be familiar with this whole law from the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, Ruth is a picture of this being played out where Boaz is the, the next of kin to Ruth and he winds up marrying her. The point of all of this command was to preserve not only the honor of the man's name, not only the name itself, but to preserve his property rights. You know that God gave the property to the various clans and families, and it was supposed to be passed down from generation to generation. And so that this family did not lose their property and their name, this law was given. And so on the basis of this law, they make up a story. And this is yet another attempt to trap Jesus. There were seven brothers, they say. One of them married a woman. He died not having children, and so the second brother steps in and marries her, and he dies without having children, and so does the third on down to the seventh brother. And last of all, she died. And had this taken place today, there would have surely been some sort of investigation well before she got to the seventh brother as to why so many were dying. We went to the beach this past week, and our first full day at the beach, I brought a tent for the first time, I'd never used a tent at the beach, so I brought a tent. On the first full day at the beach, I was setting my tent up, and frankly, I was nervous about this tent. I was not confident in my engineering nor anchoring abilities, and I was afraid this tent was going to blow away, and I was going to be running down the beach, embarrassed in front of everybody, chasing this tent that the wind had blown away. And so I had just finished setting it up. I had not even sat down in my chair yet when I turned, having finished setting it up, and a woman came up and grabbed hold of one of my tent poles and said, can I rest here for a moment? I'm not feeling well. And I said, well, why don't you sit down? And she said, no, if I sit down, I'll never get back up. I, I just want to stand here for a few moments. She was leaning on my tent, and I said, I really don't want you to do that. I'm not confident in this tent setup. I'd much prefer you sit down in my chair and we'll help you back up. And so she finally did. And then she begins to explain what the situation was. She had been walking on the beach with her husband. She turned around. He kept on going. And now she was feeling lightheaded and faint. And she had a, a brain aneurysm. And she was concerned that something was going on here. And so we said, well, uh, let's look for your husband. And she told me what he was wearing. And so we kept looking off into the distance. And finally we saw him and I ran off to get him and explain to him what was going on while she stayed there with Tracy. But in the meantime, as we were waiting on him, she told us a little bit of her story. This was her third husband. The first husband had died after 17 years of marriage. The second husband had died after 17 years of marriage. So she was twice a widow, and she was on her third husband. And when he didn't show up for quite a while, I looked at her and I said, do you think maybe something's happened to him too? <laughs> so even though this is a made-up story by the Sadducees, there's some real-life truth here. I mean, we could ask this woman, whose wife are you going to be in the resurrection? I remember some years ago I was on a golf trip, and one of the guys on the golf trip asked me a very serious question. He had married his high school sweetheart, and she had died at a very young age, probably 30s, maybe early 40s, and he was now remarried to another woman and had been for a number of years. And so one night, uh, he asked me very seriously, he said, I don't know who to be buried next to. I mean, where am I supposed to be buried? I don't know which wife that I should be next to. And so while this is a made-up story, there is some real-life application here. And so the question from this story is, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And perhaps the Pharisee's answer was the first man. He was the first to have her as wife, so that should be who she is with. Now remember, they don't even believe in the resurrection. 
They're not asking this question because they really want an answer to who she's going to be married to. They are asking this question in their minds to show the absurdity of the resurrection itself. And yet Jesus answers them and teaches us something about life after death. So let's now move to a discussion of the answer. And we know by now that Jesus is not going to be trapped by them or their question. So look at his initial answer in verse 24, and notice how powerful and direct this initial answer is. Mark 12, verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you, neither, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. The answer strikes at the very core of who these men are. These are their two areas of expertise. This is what their college degrees are in. Of course they know God and the power of God. That's what their whole life was about. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, you don't know either one of them. I mean, it would be like us going up to Peyton Manning and saying, you know nothing about being a quarterback nor football in general. That would be absurd. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, you don't know these two basic things. And that's why you are wrong in your question. These men had wandered off track or gone astray. That's what the word means. They had wandered off track or gone astray at the very heart and center of their beliefs. Incidentally, aren't these two issues still a problem today? Yes, even within the church. Studies consistently tell us that churchgoers don't know their Bibles. And I do not mean some obscure verse in Ezekiel or Leviticus. I mean basic verses that most of us should be familiar with and basic doctrines that most of us should know, even those who have been raised in the church. Studies consistently say that we simply don't know. And if we don't know the Bible well, then our understanding of who God is is going to be directly and significantly affected. And so this one statement, you are wrong because you know not the Scriptures nor the power of God, could be an appropriate answer to so many of the questions we face today. What are we confused about in our life because of this very same thing? What are we missing out on because we don't know these two things either? The common belief then and now is probably that life after death is going to be very similar to this life. There's going to be a lot of continuity between what we do in heaven and what we do now. The only difference is there's not going to be any suffering, no pain, no tears, and no problems. But Jesus' answer tells us that life after death is an entirely different arena. It is, it is on an entirely different level. It is a different dimension altogether, though, of course, there will be some similarities. He raises the discussion to another level by saying marriage will not be an issue in the resurrection. They neither marry nor are given in marriage in the resurrection. Now, that statement creates quite a crisis for some who long to be reunited with a spouse for all of eternity. I can tell you with all truth that this is a particularly hard verse for my wife, who certainly does, as you would well expect, want to be with me for eternity. <laughs> and I can say that since she's in the nursery this morning. <laughs> Others find great comfort in this verse. They say, I don't want to be married to him for eternity. So I'm glad Jesus said that we neither marry nor are given in marriage. It is the Mormons who believe in eternal marriage, not us as Christians. But that does not mean that we won't know each other or even that we won't have a close relationship with one another in heaven. 
But it does mean that our current marriage was always meant to be a picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church. That is what Paul lays out for us in Ephesians. And because our marriages are a picture of Christ in the church, when that is fulfilled, the picture is no longer necessary. Communion with Christ will be the priority. In fact, we've already seen it twice in Mark's gospel where Jesus makes very clear and direct statements that a relationship with him takes precedence even over the closest of family relationships. Now, that does not mean that we will be deprived of meaningful relationships in heaven. This I can clearly say, no one will be disappointed with what we find or experience in heaven. So in this regard, Jesus says, we will be like the angels who do not marry and who exist forever. Now, notice this says, you will be like the angels. And in context, we are talking about the fact that we will not be married. I need to point this out because there are some very prominent and common misconceptions. Peruse the obituaries and you will discover what I'm talking about. Invariably, virtually every day, there will be an obituary that says something about so-and-so passing away or going to be with the Lord, and now they have become an angel or they have received their angel wings. The Bible does not say we become angels. We do not. Angels are different creatures of God altogether, and we don't transform into one of them when we go to heaven. They are creatures of God, but they are different from us. So Jesus says we become like them in these regards that we've discussed, but we do not become angels. I realize this is a lengthy discussion uh, on the uh, answer to this question, but there is one more element, and it is very important to the question we are asking. The question again is, is there life after death? Jesus now quotes from the Old Testament. The story from Exodus chapter 3 of Moses at the burning bush. Now, why does he quote from this particular section of Scripture? You already know the answer to that because this is the section of Scripture that the Sadducees found to be authoritative. He's quoting from Moses because that was their authority, and he's going to use their Scriptures against them. So he says, returning to the burning bush, he says, God spoke to Moses and called himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, a phrase that is familiar to us who know our Bibles. So you say, well, why is this significant? How is this proof of life after death that God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's proof because when God spoke that to Moses, those three patriarchs had been dead for centuries. And yet God does not speak in the past tense. He does not say there was a time when I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He speaks in the present tense. I am the God of these three patriarchs because those patriarchs are not dead. They are still living. And therefore, God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. A God of the dead is a contradiction in terms. So now quickly, we conclude this part of our text with a description of their response. And there really isn't much response at all. We're not told of a response, just the reiteration that they are quite wrong according to Jesus. But we do know that these men will participate in what's going to transpire in the few days. That is, they will be party to the arrest of Jesus. They will sit in judgment against Jesus as part of the Sanhedrin, and they will endorse his crucifixion. 
So even though Jesus has proven them wrong, they are going to persist in their wrongness. And so as we close this section and move to our second question, let me ask you, what if you are wrong about this question? When you ask the question to yourself, is there life after death, and you scoff, and you say there can't be life after death, it just doesn't make sense, and you have all of these other reasons or questions as to why it doesn't make sense, I'm simply asking you, what if you are wrong about that? And you discover someday, perhaps too late, that there is indeed life after death. I'm asking you to consider the question, and I'm asking you to respond differently from what these religious leaders did. Jesus said very clearly that God is the God of the living. If God is going to direct and guide us in this life through all of our problems and all of our struggles, and then he's going to abandon us against our greatest enemy, which is death, what kind of God is that? His covenant would be broken, his his promise is null and void. So God is not the God of the dead, He is the God of the living, and I am asking you to consider that, trust Him, and respond by coming to Him in truth. A far greater question than will there be marriage in heaven is will you be in heaven? That's the question you need to think about. Well, let's move on to our second question. Number one we've asked, is there life after death? And Jesus has answered, yes, God is a God of the living. And so we move to our second section of Scripture, verses 28 through 34, and we look at a second question. Verse 28, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of our heart, with all of our understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I find that last statement to be a bit humorous. They finally had enough, and they know they cannot trap him. Well, our second question poses a different issue. What is the greatest commandment? We love these kind of questions, don't we? We debate these kinds of things all the time. Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Who's the greatest uh, pitcher in baseball? Who is the greatest politician? Who is the greatest actor? Or I'll give you an easy one. Who's the greatest preacher you've ever heard? See, you know the answer to that one. I'm going to use the same subpoints that we used in the first question. And so first, we need to talk about a description of a scribe. We've seen these men before, and again, they are part of the group that make up the Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. We tend to think that they are men who simply copied the law, and they did do that, but they did much more than that. They not only copied the law, they knew the law, they sought to live the law, and they sought to make sure that others did likewise. Now, the interesting thing about this encounter is that this is one scribe coming to Jesus. Every other time we've talked about these encounters, it is a group of Pharisees or Sadducees, but this is one man who comes to Jesus now, and what also sets him apart 
is he really does seem to be coming to seek the truth. Every other thing's been a trap. But this man seems to want the truth and knows that Jesus has been giving good answers. And this is the only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus commends speaking highly of a scribe. With that basic information, we move to the details of the question. Which is the greatest commandment is a question they no doubt discussed among themselves. We actually have records of rabbis, both before Jesus and after, who have answered this same question. There were 613 commands in the Torah, 365 prohibitions, that is, things you ought not to do, and that leaves 248 positive commands. These were then divided into heavy and light commands based on the command itself and the consequences for disobedience. In fact, Jesus seems to acknowledge this distinction when in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So he seems to acknowledge this distinction between the two. So we begin our discussion of the answer with the Shema, which is a Hebrew word meaning to hear. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, a passage of Scripture that pious Jews would have recited every morning and every evening. This is their fourfold response. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then following that is the fourfold response. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In actuality, the Deuteronomy passage only mentions three, but Jesus adds the word mind. And perhaps you remember this was our topic of conversation last July when we did our uh, dinner series last summer. We took four weeks to look at these things. How do we love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? The truth is that they all four speak to the totality of who we are. This is not meant to be a designation of the various parts of human nature. It's just a way of saying that our response to God is to be a total response of love. And it is to be a total response of love in reply to his oneness. That is, there is one God. And the scribe replies, you have well said, teacher, there is only one God. There is no other. And therefore, our love must not be divided. It must be complete. But then Jesus goes and adds a second statement, this time from Leviticus. By the way, this is a good time to remind us. I mean, just in these two passages of Scripture, this is not a ton of verses, but just in these two passages of Scripture, we've now come across two quotes from Deuteronomy, one from Exodus, and now one from Leviticus, telling us how important it is for us to know our Old Testaments. We cannot understand these dialogues with these religious leaders unless we understand the background, and that means we must know our Old Testament. So those who say we're New Testament Christians and don't need our Old Testament simply don't understand that the more we know the Old Testament, the more the New Testament opens up to us. Now, this second quote is the famous, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is not a plug for self-love that is so prominent now in modern psychology. You know, you got to love yourself before you can love others. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He is simply acknowledging that it is normal and mostly inherent within individuals to love themselves. And therefore, as you love yourself, which is common, you ought to love others as well. And of course, the neighbors here they would have restricted. Jews restricted neighbors to those who were their fellow Jews. 
certainly not those outside of Israel, uppermost being the dreaded Samaritans. But you know Jesus obliterated this distinction in his famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, a phrase we still use all these many years later. We still talk about someone who goes out of their way to help someone else as a good Samaritan. So Jesus combines these two commands in a way that nobody had done before him. He combines love of God, the totality of the love of God, with all of your being, with loving others as well. Love is such a common and yet misunderstood word. Many withhold saying it. I mean, whole generations, in essence, have tried to withhold saying, I love you. Others throw it out just at the drop of a hat, saying they basically love everybody without really thinking much about it. I always tell the couples that I deal with in premarital counseling that this is a difficult issue because we use the word in so many different ways. I can rightly say I love football, and I love ice cream, and I love my wife, and all of those are true statements, but if they all mean the same thing, then I am in a world of trouble. So what does it mean to love God? Not to just say it, but to actually love God. Well, for one, it means obedience. I mean, if you go back to that passage in Deuteronomy that I quoted, verses 4 through 6, just go back a couple of verses in verse 2. That passage talks about being obedient to God. And then following that, it talks about how we're to teach obedience to our children. And it's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament says it as well. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We tend to think of love primarily as a feeling or an emotion. And although it does include these things, that is not its essence. Love is an action word. It's not butterflies in your stomach, whatever that might mean. It is an action word whereby we are committed to expressing it to someone else. We express our love to God through our obedience and through our loving of others. So much so, the combining of these two commands, that if we do not love others, then we surely do not love God. In fact, John, in his first epistle, makes this very plain. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, one of the great things about John's epistles is that he is so clear and so direct. And he says, don't go saying you love God if you don't love others. Because loving others is proof that you genuinely love God. And Jesus is saying the same thing here by com uh, combining these two commands. Love for others invariably flows from our love for God. Obeying the second, that is love of neighbor, is proof that we've embraced the first, that is love of God. Well, let's conclude by looking at a description of the response. And, and this time we, do re we really do have a response. It's a good response. It's not perfect. The man agrees with Jesus' reply, so much so that look at verse 33, the second half of verse 33 again. He says, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, that may not sound much to you, like sound like much to you, but remember, this man's a scribe. This man is involved in the temple worship. This man is involved in leadership in the temple worship. This man's life was filled with rituals in the temple, many of them including sacrifices. And yet he says, 
Love of God from the heart is greater than all of the rituals and all of the sacrifices that even God prescribed in the temple. Even these sacred religious duties prescribed by God don't take the place of actually loving God. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13, where repeatedly, we call it the love chapter, and repeatedly there Paul says, if I do this and yet I don't have love, it's nothing. If I do all of these religious duties, if I serve and and give and do all of these other things and yet have not love, I am nothing. And that is what Jesus is saying here as well. And the scribe understands that a relationship with God is centered in a heart of love, not external rituals. And Jesus commends him for it. In what might seem like a strange statement to us, he said, you're not in the kingdom, but you're close. And no doubt that statement is meant to produce reflection in the man so that he will think about what is the next step to being in the kingdom. But while it's not not a, a comfort yet, it is a compliment. There is an old saying, I'm not sure how much we use it anymore, but there is an old saying that says, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Now we might add some other things, perhaps uh, whatever that other game is now we play, but Somebody said it, but anyway. Well, we can't add the kingdom of God. Close does not count in the kingdom of God. You are either in or you are out. There is no close that counts. We started talking this morning about coming to Jesus being not always equal. That is, there are people, and we've seen repeated stories, where groups, and again, these are religious men, groups of religious men come to Jesus. They answer the call, if you will, but not for the right reasons. They are there to trap Jesus. And I'm not saying today that people come to trap Jesus, but they do come for impure motives. They do come with selfish desires, as we've seen throughout this gospel. But then we were introduced to a man who, by all accounts, comes seeking the truth. He really does want Jesus' answer this time. He wants to know what he believes the greatest command is. But my concern in all of this is your relationship with Christ. That first question, there is life after death. We pose the question, is that true? And we've tried to answer that through the words of Jesus, that it is indeed true because God is the God of the living, not the dead. And therefore, if there is life after death, the question then becomes, where will you spend it? Will you spend it in a place the Bible calls heaven with Christ? Or will you spend it apart from God in a place the Bible calls hell? Well, perhaps you say, I'm not sure. Then you may be just like the scribe. You're close to the kingdom of God. You're thinking about it. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. But yet you've never taken that next step to actually become part of the kingdom of God. Maybe you need to reflect about it. Maybe you need to respond in faith and trust Christ, repenting of your sins. Maybe you need to receive the kingdom of God as a free gift from God by grace, even as the rest of us have. Maybe you need to talk further about it, and we would love to do that. That is why we exist. We want to talk to you about your relationship with Christ. 